2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jana Byers, and I'm here today with Sarah Ritchie, Associate Professor of History at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, Tennessee, about her new book, Acts of Care, Recovering Women in Late Medieval Health, out with Cornell University Press this year, 2021. Hello, Sarah.
0: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
1: You are so welcome. Thanks for joining me. Oh, how are you? How are things in Knoxville?
0: Things are great. I'm actually talking to you right now from Washington, Mm. D.C., but but I'm still teaching this semester. um, And so I'm kind of back and forth between Knoxville virtually (laughs) and uh, D.C. physically. Um, But things, things are going as good as could possibly be expected. I consider myself very lucky to be healthy and here talking with you.
1: Yep, that is uh, that's that's a that's the thing. When we want to despair, we must remember that this is actually okay. Yeah, we're actually doing okay. I have yeah, yet. I'm all, we're still kind of over it though.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm getting I'm getting pretty tired of it. Sure, definitely, definitely. I've uh, you know it's, I've learned so much about myself, about my family, my work habits, my needs, and. Um, and now I know I'm done learning about myself. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I suspected that I would never take off my yoga pants, and uh, I, I was right, and that I do. i person too. All right. Okay, so I'm looking over your CV, and I see some very clear academic interests, you know, as well as your first monograph, Gender, Health, and Healing, 1250 to 1550. You've written several of these articles with these really fabulous titles, like, Caring by the Hours, the Psalter is a source of gendered health care, health, healing, and salvation, hagiography is a source of medieval health care, uh, the wounds, presence, and bodily absence, the experience of God in a 14th century manuscript, all of which show um, a clear kind of relentless interest in the intersection of religious practice writ large and the practice of medicine writ equally large in the medieval area. So I'd like to know kind of how this happened. How did you come to these interests? How did you begin to look for healthcare kind of in this space? Um, And uh, how did you come to write this book in general?
0: Yeah. Okay, great. That's a great question. Thank you so much. I should say Gender, Health, and Healing is, um, just for clarification, is not uh, my monograph. That's actually an edited volume. And the reason it's so important for me to say that is because because Sharon Strokia, my co-editor, is so brilliant. And I know she's been on your show. And um, all of the, co- the collaborators, all of the authors that participated in that volume have just been so just brilliant to work with. Oh, yeah. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that I clarified that. My, my monograph, my first monograph came out in 2014 on Cornell Press, and it's called Holy Matter. Um, uh-huh. a, long, yeah. um, a long subtitle, and sometimes I can't even remember what it is. Um, uh, Changing Perceptions of the Material World. Uh, it okay
1: Christianity. so
0: but to answer <laughs>
1: thanks <your> question, i'm <laughs> sorry i just wrote the copied the wrong line of the cv yeah
0: understandable um so i can't but it, it you know nevertheless you know the question still it, it, it it's uh it's a great question and it makes a lot of sense because there is so much um there's so much overlap in these uh, ideas about religion and medicine that I've been exploring for my entire career. And I think even with Holy Matter, um, questions about the material world and the immaterial world or the, in, the visible world and the invisible world really were coming together. So um, to get back to your question about how I came to this, I, uh, you know, like so many, so many of these big long term projects, I think it, it came in a number of waves um, and so I started really thinking about this project, um, probably in 2009, which is a really pivotal was a really pivotal year for me. Um, I was still actually working on my first book, um, and that was the year I uh, I, I I had uh, my son. Um, I delivered my son, and um, my uh, my my mother-in-law was also extremely ill and eventually died. And it was very, it was a very difficult time in that sense, but also a very joyful time in the sense of the birth of our son. And uh, so I was spending a lot of time in hospitals, just a, sort of an extraordinary amount of time in hospitals. And I was also um, navigating with great intensity uh, the broken healthcare system uh, that is in this country. Um, and at the same time, I was also, I'm from South Louisiana. Um, and I was, at the time I was, I was working there at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and I was surrounded by my family who has been there for generations and generations. Um, and so I was sort of immersed in these Cajun and Creole traditions, um, of healing and caring, um, traditions surrounding birth and death, uh, and food as a, a, as a form of caring. And so I think that I, it was at that moment, that really pivotal moment in, in my life, where I um I really began to see for the first time what was always there surrounding me. Um Jessica Marie Johnson introduced me to this term uh submerged knowledge. And so I, I think it was at that time surrounded by family, by caretakers of of, of many varieties, um, that I started to see everyday acts as a form of submerged knowledge about the body and about what works for healing in terms of healing and caring. I was also, I should say, I was at the same time that semester, I was teaching the Liegeois Corpus as part of a course on um, gender and mysticism in the Middle Ages. And so as I was kind of going through these um, <laughs> these these daily acts of care. I was being cared for. I was giving a lot of care in my life. I was also teaching that what would become sort of the, the 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 first source base for this project. Being able to see in those um, see, the, I was starting to see the patterns that were becoming visible in my own life were becoming visible in the sources that I was teaching as well. And I would also add, so that was so that was one sort of moment of the genesis of this project, but I should, I would be remiss not to add the other extremely pivotal moment, which was in 2012. Um, I was lucky enough to uh, take part in the NEH uh, Summer Institute led by um, Monica Green at the Wellcome Institute in London. And that's when what what was previously sort of a feeling became an actual viable project because of uh, uh, Monica's ability to introduce me to a whole range of uh, uh, manuscripts and historiographies and interlocutors and a network of scholars. Um, so I think that was the sort of the next big step. And then the project kind of just unfolded from there.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Um, this, may, this makes sense, you know, that you would – in the medieval world, like the walls between the physical and the spiritual worlds are just so porous, right? And then, you know, that you would have this experience where you're seeing them this way as well. You're having these intense physical and emotional experiences, and it makes sense that this would kind of come together and coalesce for you into a project. Um. yeah. Uh, and the idea of submerged knowledge, which leads us kind of to your sources, um, because there are loads of pre-modern medical treatises out there, and that's not what you use primarily. Um, so I would like you to tell our listeners what you are using and why you've picked that.
0: Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my sources are a little bit all over the place, really. Um, they're, it's kind of a grab bag um one of the sort of challenges of this project was uh figuring out how to organize it. I think I wrote it and then rewrote it I, I don't even want to say how many times um mm-hmm. based on sort of reorganizing it uh on sort based of, based on sources and so um but but it, in the end uh we ended up uh deciding and and I mean we as in me and all of the the, the immense amount of scholars, uh, and editors that really helped me think through it. Um I ended up with that help uh dividing it into three sections based on sources. So I guess I could kind of walk you through the through hmm. the book talking about um those those if that makes sense.
1: For uh, sure. Yeah. Like we can we can <laughs> I don't want we to work can down it that way. way. Yeah. yeah no, um, that's how we can do yeah. this. That's great. Okay, <laughs> so um,
0: so the 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 first, as I mentioned before, the sort of first set of sources is the first part of the book, and those are hagiographic sources. So, um, in um, in the Low Countries uh, in the 13th century, um, there is this body um, of uh, saints' lives, um, this really rich. Um, sort of unequaled uh, body of narrative texts that tells us about uh, holy people who were, uh, developed uh, attracted um, cults, attracted communities of the faithful uh, while they were still alive. Um, and so those are just incredible sources to begin with. Um, and in particularly in terms of gender, they're helpful for thinking about um, the sanctity and how 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 sanctity manifested uh, along the lines of gender because they because um, it's kind of easy to divide them between um, easily between women and men. OK, so the first set of sources then is primarily hagiographic. I start mm-hmm. with miracle stories Um, that took place at tombs and with uh, uh, relics of women saints from the 13th century low countries. And I should say that women and 13th century and low countries, all of these things can be qualified Mm -hmm. here, (laughs) but that's what the monograph is for and not for a podcast. So I'm just uh, (laughs) going to go over that. (laughs) But roughly speaking, in this time, in this place, stories about miraculous Posthumous healing mm-hmm. were told about women and not about men. Okay. Um, so that's where I start. Um, and again, there are some qualifications. We can argue about sample size. We can argue about what is a miracle, what is a saint, what is a cure, but that's not even really remotely the point. The point mm-hmm. is that there is a gendered dimension to these stories, and that's what I wanted to investigate. Um, I wanted to ask why were stories about health and care and cure attributed mm-hmm. to women in this and place, especially since, especially since, and this I think is re- really getting to the question that you're asking. If we look at the documents, if we look at the treatises from the so-called medical tradition, women aren't credited as healers. Mm-hmm. So why is there such a proliferation of attention um, to women as healers in these kinds of sources? So well- I also- uh-huh, yeah. Go ahead.
1: Well, I think it's interesting to note as well that, you know, if we think about, um, they are so, uh, so interested in cure and care that you, if you, you read them and you tend to take that almost for granted, you can anyway, but we could think about as well, the wide variety of things that these, these tales, these saints lives could be talking about, but they really do focus on healthcare, right? Oh and, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know? Like this is there's so much that isn't there in so that they can be about healthcare, and then if you compare that with medical treatises, and I'm making air quotes, um, <laughs> where there are no women at all, it's really striking.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It is the space. It is the sort of narrative space that allows us to see what women were doing. One of the um, one of the, the 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 sort of anecdotes that. Really speaks to me, and I, I, I think I start the book with this, but I'm going to be honest with you and tell you that I once I see something in print that I've written, I cannot look at it again. So I can't remember if it's the beginning
1: understood
0: chapter or if it's the beginning of the book itself. I can't remember, but uh, anyway, one of the, the the stories that was really just kind of eye popping for me was um, Ida Vem Uh, who, um, her her hagiographer tells this sort of extended, um, uh, uh, detailed story about her uh, going into the home of a man who was suffering. Um, I can't remember exactly what his affliction was, but I believe that was something like a tumor of some kind. It's all described um, she asks questions about the site of the pain and the 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 time, the duration of the pain. And then she um sort of with a look, she lances it and he's fine. He's on his deathbed, and then he's fine. And so all of this is happening, and these are that component is fairly typical. But then the hagiographer says, and from this moment forward, Everyone revered her for her virginal holiness, and I was like, "But wait, she just she just healed someone. What does this have to do with her virginal holiness?" Um, and so it really helped me clarify how stories about um, religious women were tra- healing stories about religious women transmitted uh, through, and they were translated through narratives of holiness, narratives. of sort of, um, virginity brides of Christ language.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and where power comes from, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, yeah. right. Where from whence these women's authority comes. Um, so is this a good time to talk about the idea of non-evidence?
0: Yeah. Like. <laughs> uh, any, every time is a good time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you have a let me know if you have a specific question. I will just no, say no. That's, that is Monica Green's genius mm-hmm. term, non-evidence. Um, and you know, for for me, what non-evidence means is, I mean, I think the, the the main thing that I want to get across when talking about non-evidence is not. It's not even really. It's not novel. It's it's not even mine. Um, it, it, and it's really a methodological argument. It's one that medievalists of color have been making for some time. Mm-hmm. It's certainly beyond the world of medieval studies, scholars in Native American and Indigenous studies and African-American history, histories of enslavement, Black feminist scholars, scholars of empire. They, they've all been telling us, they, they, they've all been showing us that what gets recorded in the archive. Is not the whole story. Uh, there are lives and knowledges and experiences and kinship formations and strategies of survival that that have evaded the archive, that have been intentionally dismissed as evidence mm-hmm. uh, over hundreds of years. Um, so, so that's what non-evidence is to me. Non-evidence is, is exactly like you say. It's about power. It's about what gets recorded. As knowledge, as truth, okay. and, as and what, is- what? What we as historians say, mm-hmm. okay, that's knowledge, that's evidence. It's, mm-hmm. it's on us too.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a very important point. Um, it's what's written down originally, what is retold, what gets what gets put where in an archive. Whenever that happens, you know, right. which can be the 14th century or last week, like, right? And then and then what we talk about. There's kind of this ongoing thing. Um, so all of all of these your source material, these hagiographical texts they're largely um a lot of women talking or being talked about right mm-hmm. um, and so what does this tell us about religious women's acts of care um the power and authority they hold over sick bodies is a question you bring up,
0: yeah, um. I think in part, it tells us, well, it tells us a a lot of things. One (laughs) is that feminized forms of care were indeed valued. Um, They were indeed integral to uh, healthcare, the pre-modern healthcare system, uh, at least in Western Europe, um, in a way that is not reflected in our sources. Um, it, that is in a, in a way that is not reflected in our sources that we have heretofore reckoned as medical. Um, so that's one thing uh, I think that the that they they tell us. I think another thing that uh, these sources tell us about women's care is that, um, they w- that what was valued about women's care seems to have been especially. Uh, their affective labor. Mm-hmm. So when we look at these sources, we see all kinds of different kinds of care, uh, you know, w- wound care, um, uh, uh, obstetric care, um, the healing, uh, or not necessarily healing, I, I want to be careful with that term, but caring for um, uh, people with leprosy, um uh caring for people with all kinds of afflictions. Um but even though there's this huge range of the kinds of healthcare acts that we see in these sources, the one thing that seems to be um an absolute constant is this interest in um uh attending to uh or are calling upon women at times of of dire need, um, just uh, intense sickness, uh, nearing death, uh, calling women to be by the by the bedside to provide forms of affective care, including uh, prayers, um, the recitation of uh, the psalms, um, and uh, you know, I, I talked quite a bit at some point about um, uh, the, the the sort of highly dramatic poetry, um, that seems to have been recited, uh, uh, for the sick in the presence of the sick. So, um, the, the, it just to to kind of wrap up your question, all of the, the the kinds of care to, to use the, the medical terminology of the time, um, uh, the non-naturals, uh, so the non-natural, so (laughs) this kind of gets us into the weeds a little bit. I don't know you can just stop me now.
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no, go I, ahead. No. Go ahead and do this. The non
0: naturals <laughs> <laughs> This but, is fascinating. Um, uh, but the you know the the humoral body, the pre-modern humoral body, was to 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 to, to kind of put this project this in the most um, generalized terms possible. Uh, you know, the the body itself, the internal body was made up of humors and qualities. Um and you know, that determined um the, the sort of the balance of the humors or the imbalance of them uh determined uh, a patient's uh sickness or health, um what kind of remedies they might need. But the the non what were called in medical theory, what were called the non-naturals referred to the the this the, they're called the six non-naturals. Um, <laughs> and this refers to factors external to the body uh, that, that influence, that affect mm-hmm. the internal body. So you can think of things like the quality of the air as external to the body. But nevertheless, you could see how in a medieval humoral system,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the air that you breathe would, of course, affect the interior of the body or something like exercise. Um, mm-hmm. these are non naturals, but one of the other non naturals, one of the six non naturals is something it's variously termed, but uh it's the passions of the soul um this really just dramatic word for a phrase for what for what we what for what we might now think of it as the emotions, so emotional health um was incredibly important, incredibly vital to to human health more generally. Mm -hmm. And it seems um, from these sources that um, care of emotional health um, was something that doctors of all kinds, of all varieties did take care of, but religious women seemed to be regarded as experts Mm -hmm. in caring for the passions of the soul. Uh, through through things like prayers and intense words, dramatic performances, poetry, music, liturgy.
1: All right.
2: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready to eat meals. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie smart, protein plus, and keto. These are two minute meals, slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: There's so many ways I want to go right now. Um, and we're, we're a little off script for me. So, you know, we may have <laughs> to like, come <laughs> back. <laughs> no, because this is so cool. And I just want to like make a quick note for my listeners, for anyone who's an a medievalist or, you know, a pre-modern historian, they're like, this isn't far off from what we talk about now. Right, like we have this idea that medieval medicine is hideous, and you know it's not. It's not great, but the idea that your emotional health matters is something that people are still going to talk about. It's not bad, you know. Right. I just FYI, just I feel like I want to put that in, you know, because our students are always like, "Well, it's lucky anyone lived," and it's like, "Well, kinda." There were no, you know, no antibiotics, but the idea that you should keep a wound clean is pretty solid. Um, Okay. So I think that what what I want to do now is go into part two where you move to sources that are largely written by authorities male authorities yeah okay know. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah go ahead no that, that, that there we go you're you're okay. off go.
0: <laughs> all right so yeah so part two and I have to say just to get back to the issue of like how how on earth one writes or organizes a book this part was <laughs> such a challenge for me. And every every everyone that I gave it to to read was like, I don't know what you do with this. But originally it was the last part of the book and, and pretty much universally everyone was like, no, 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 you cannot end your book on these male yeah. authoritative sources after everything that you've said. So that's how this, that's how it became the second part of the book. Um, uh, so, it, uh, yeah, so the, so again, the book is structured by, by source material, and so the second part of the book is these authoritative texts. They are male-authored texts, um, and they are texts about therapeutic knowledge and therapeutic authority. So um, there are a number of overlapping discourses, uh, overlapping conversations, um, authoritative conversations, um, that talk about how how bodies heal and who have very importantly who has the authority to use the tools that enable bodies to heal. Um, so there are medical discourses, there are medical texts, um, and medical texts, uh, male authored. When I when I'm saying medical texts here, I mean very much like physician authored. Tra- university-trained mm-hmm. uh, medical texts, uh, treatises, systematic treatises uh, on medicine, mm-hmm. and um, these texts make plenty of room for uh, the passions of the soul. They make plenty of room for uh, the kinds of caregiving and health-providing acts that we have seen in the the first section that we've already talked about that women were responsible for um, that, you know, the non-natural caring for the non-natural environment, um, caring for, you know, just basic um, emotional health, but additionally, you know, your basic everyday regimen, but food, you know, providing healthy food, a healthy, clean environment, this sort of thing. So they make plenty of room for that. What they what they're sort of the, the, the ground, I guess, I guess you could say that there is some anxiety among Mm -hmm. all of these um, uh, authoritative discourses when it comes to the passions of the soul. And when it comes to what we might think of as verbal forms of medicine. So prayers, um, charms or incantations, um, which are, you know, for, I don't, I can I can see why your listeners might not know what I mean by a charmer and incantation. But <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. Yeah. <laughs> These are just um, words, really. They can mm-hmm. be words. They can be uh, performed words. Um, they're they're sort of um, utterances, uh, or, or written down. In that case, not necessarily utterances, but they're they're words that are prescribed for healing purposes. Um, and so uh, the authoritative medical treatises seem to um, have a lot of anxiety about. Uh, they, they certainly say, the, you know, they're not willing to say that these do not work. Um, but instead, they, they want to, these male authors, university trained authors, really want to kind of take control over the circumstances mm-hmm. in which verbal medicine can work. And those circumstances, to, to generalize are, um, are masculine. (laughs) Only men, they seem, they want to, they want to state that it is only trained men, trained physicians who can properly use these words and harness these words. Um, so, uh, so on the one hand, yeah, there's, uh, uh, there's a, a, a lot of discourse um kind of trying to figure out the terms on which verbal medicine is 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 able to be used so that's one aspect there's also um at the same time there's anxiety about from from another terrain of authority among theologians and hagiographers there's anxiety about um uh, uh the place of the soul there's anxiety about um Perhaps there's a recognition, of course, that 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 uh, physica, that scientific medicine, uh, material based, rational based medicine is very, very important. But there is some concern we notice in um, the the conversations among authoritative theologians and hagiographers about the place of the soul. Like there's some concern that maybe um, uh there's too much physicalization. There's too much rationalization, and maybe the place of God and miracle is being um, uh, eroded by yeah. medical discourses. So basically, that the whole section two is of the book is about um, the anxiety over therapeutic authority about who can heal, what are the terms on which they can heal. And it's it's if I could have written it the way I wanted it to write to write it, it would have been just um, just a, a head spinning, overlapping crosstalk about God and the body and science in the 13th century. But, uh, you know, you keep running into um, our academic models of writing that simply don't allow for that, <laughs> that kind of messiness. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's basically what's going on in that chapter.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, that's kind of jumping, diving into that messiness, like getting into the fray of those words and then coming back out and explaining it to other people and meaning that's kind of our job, right?
0: Um, right. Yeah.
1: Like here, let me do this incredibly heavy lifting for you because uh, that's what it is. You know, when I was reading this section, I kind of felt for these men in a way I don't usually. Um, I felt like they're in a pickle. You know, um, <laughs> this works. so they know that, but it's not really one hundred percent okay. And there's women doing it, and that's not one hundred percent okay. And they're not doing it, and that's not one hundred percent okay. But it's still happening. When-
0: yeah yeah, there's I mean the thing that's so that was so difficult about that chapter was just there's so much contradiction, there's so much instability, there are assertions that yes, yes, of course, soothing words and the passions of the soul and prayers mm-hmm. and arms and amulets, yes, of course, these are viable modes of health, but 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 but, but, don't trust. Women with them. Only eligible <laughs> men know how to use
1: them correctly. <laughs> but maybe women will be administering them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, right. You, you should be very suspicious because
0: women women are most likely to be using them.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and women,
0: also, you know, they also really want to be careful about. You know, there are women that are truly holy that can't. You know, they're just they're they're limbed by so many different factors.
1: And you know, you've got this space where like prayer works. And that's and an incantation is just kind of a variety thereof, right? Of like yeah. verbal, like a magic but God approved Matt, like yeah. you know, I not not but not magic, but you know, this thing, this supernatural power. But it's really close to prayer too, which is definitely women can pray, but they can't pray for like it's Right. They don't have that spiritual authority. It's this is a really tough path to chart. Um, And there's you are a little bit free of that much free of that when we move into part three. And that's just the communication that women basically had with another with one another.
0: Right. Yes. So part three goes into a new kind of um, text. And so part three basically says, all right, all right, all right. So. (laughs) So, you know, if you look at something like Danielle Jacquard's um, uh, study, uh, you know, amazingly thorough study of uh, practitioners, then we find 1.5% of the total number of practitioners um, in the kingdom of France from the 12th to 15th century are women, 1.5%. And yet we look at something like these hagiographic sources and... and even though, you know, the, I use hagiographic sources, that's not the, we're not limited to those. I mean, if you look at things like romance and poetry, women are constantly appearing surfacing um, as, you know, using potions and using herbs and healing, you know, fallen uh, knights and all kinds of things. So um, it's this sort of. um, Okay. Sure. We do not see women writing systematic medical treatises. Um, and we don't find that Monica Green has done an incredible study of the, the, the manuscripts and shown that, you know, w- when we look at women's communities, we also don't see academic medical treatises. And yet, nevertheless, we know. Um we know from um, the the number of hospitals um, that women ran. We know from mm-hmm. um, uh, records like these hagiographic sources that women we know from anthropological studies that women are still providing the bulk of care. so so for section three, I was just sort of like, okay, well, what do we have? What were women reading? you know what were if they weren't reading academic treatises, well, how, how were they gaining knowledge about the body and health? Um, So for that, for that section, then I look at the, 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 the the kinds of sources that women did have in their communities. And that is, um, so I, I, that section is uh, divided into two different chapters. One is on Psalters as a genre of book that circulated through women's communities and specifically through women's communities that we know for a fact ran hospitals um and then um uh, you,
1: uh, real quick what's a salter
0: Oh yes, of course. Um, that's not knowledge you're born with. That's not intuitive. <laughs> uh, so, a psalter is um, it's a it's a, essentially a prayer book. It's a book of psalms, and technically, the books that I look at would be called psalter hours, which is so they're um, they're uh, the psalters. So, the book of psalms, this central um, uh, book in. Um, uh, um, uh, both Jewish and Christian tradition, um, a biblical book. And then also, um, the, the Psalter hours is more a, a, a better terminology for the kind of book that I use. So it's not just the Psalter that is, it's not just the course of Psalms. It's also, uh, there are daily prayers. There are prayers, um, uh, there are sort of specific prayers for specific times. But there are also, the reason I chose the the, the specific manuscripts that I chose, was there are also a number of incidental texts, a number of texts that were inserted into what could be, what what one might regard as a sort of a formulaic prayer book, mm-hmm. the Psalter, or the Psalter Hours might be seen as otherwise formulaic. What we have among the um, Judith oliver collected um forty one noted a, a collection of forty one Psalters from um beginish i'll say communities begin <laughs> begin like communities um in uh the southern low Countries um in uh the around the Meuse valley this river valley um and uh they all sort of have sort of improvisational texts. So in addition to the formulaic, um, the standard Psalter, the standard Psalms um, and prayers, there's also more individualized components as well, individualized readings. And those tell us a lot about how women were using these books. Um, They allow us to kind of make some movement beyond the traditional liturgical use of a book to think about it uh to think about this book guiding women's knowledge and guiding women's action um in other terrains as well um outside of just the standard um liturgy um so uh yeah so so on the one hand i look at psalters and mm-hmm. psalters have the psalms but they also um, include things like poetry and regimen and liturgy and saints' prayers, and then um, in the other the other uh, section, I um, I look at uh, uh, miscellanies devote what we might call devotional, a couple of devotional miscellanies um, from the thirteenth century uh, from women's communities, and to think about how um, how women were. Well, the 13th and, and uh, early 14th century, I should say. But um, these include things like birth indulgences, um, prayers, he, very exp- explicit healing prayers to saints. Um, they include performative texts like blessings, um, blessings of water, for example, blessings for grain. Um, and they also, uh, the, the, the range of texts in these miscellanies Miscellanies are just these, these 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 they're they're it's a di- diverse there's a great number of many different kinds of texts in these books um and they sort of allow me to imagine how saints' lives were read in religious communities um in in women's religious communities um and they were read as therapeutic so it kind of goes first full circle it goes back to the original hagiographic sources that i talked about in the first section and thinking about how those sources themselves were read as, um, as part of, uh, as a means of stimulating the passions of the soul Mm -hmm. as a means of healing. Um, I think the big thing I would also just say about the the kinds of sources that I look in this at, in this, um, in this chapter or, or in the, in this last section is that, um, uh, there's this idea of, uh, orature, which I learned from Ngugi Watsiango. and orature refers to the sort of this space between text and uh, performance uh, or written text and oral knowledge or orally communicated ideas. Um, and so getting back to the question about non-evidence um, I, and why why women Communities, religious communities, don't have medical texts in them. Why? Why we don't see um, these academic treatises in women's hands? Well, it seems from from the texts that we do have that medical knowledge, humoral medical knowledge, was communicated mm-hmm. not through in women's communities was communicated not through um, uh, these systematic treatises, but through orature, through oral. Mm-hmm that uh knowledge about the body and health and healing was transmitted in women's communities in this space between the written and the oral um, through media like poetry and images.
1: That's fascinating. So, I mean, did they see themselves as healers? Uh-huh.
0: That's a great question. Um I don't know how to answer that question. That's a really good question. In part, I don't know how to answer that question because um, in a large part, we just don't have their their own writing. Um, uh, but I, I think that they would have seen themselves as sort of m- m- caretakers, as, mm-hmm. as doing charitable service. Um, and does that mean... Healing, yes. I, I think their audiences, their their patients, saw them as healers for sure. Um, I think they saw their work. The best way that I can encapsulate how I think they regarded their own labor as is is as the labor of charity.
1: Hmm. So, do you see them as healers?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I do. Yeah. Okay. I, I see them as healthcare workers. Um, and I see them as doing the kind of the, – the healthcare work that they do is the most intimate and daily and sustaining work that there, mm-hmm. that there is, that there was.
1: I mean, I think part of the issue – part of the thing that I see here as well is that you're kind of forcing us to reconsider what falls under the purview of pre-modern medicine, kind of uh, you know, look, we have these boundaries for what equals medicine, and they may not map specifically here.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that we are so conditioned in the we that I'm weeing here. Mm-hmm. Is, um, you know, I am, I'm, I'm talking to you from the United States in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, we tend, it's very hard to unthink biomedicine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so i think that we tend to we scholars now a different slightly different we slightly more precise we tend to project our understanding of biomedicine onto the premodern past and so a big goal of this book for me was to unthink bio in in biomedical terms and instead of looking at what those with authority say this is medicine. Instead, looking at acts of healthcare, mm-hmm. um, so looking at practice, um, looking at going to the sites of the sites where people said I was healed, um, or the sites where people said I am sick and I want assistance. And those sites were very different from Montpellier, you know, those from <laughs> Bologna. Um, those were much more intimate settings. Those were bedsides. Um, those were tombs and shrines and relics. And um, so that t- tells me simply that our our biomedical modes of of thinking about what is medicine simply don't can't capture um and they they obscure uh what the ways that people living in um late medieval europe sought to um access healthcare
1: yeah definitely um, and then, of course, that's gendered, right? Um, as Mary Fazel noted, and you mentioned in your book, almost everyone. I'm this is not a quote; it's a paraphrase. Like basically, almost everyone, almost everyone, is brought into the world and ushered out of it by a woman. So it's hard not to yeah. think about that, and uh, you yeah. know, yeah, definitely
0: very gendered division of labor, <laughs>
1: and, and and thus the care of those people in between those two moments. Uh, it's like is also going to be gendered. I'm going to be gendered female.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Montserrat Cabret, just, just, you know, like, just like so many of the other scholars I've mentioned, uh, are just absolutely brilliant, wonderful scholar, really blew the lid off when, with her observation that women didn't receive occupational markers, meaning they didn't get professional titles. Um, they, you're not going to find women as healthcare workers by going around and looking for, uh, terminology like doctor or physician Mm. or surgeon, or even in, in many cases, midwife. Um, instead you have to look for the kind of healing and healthcare acts. And when we're talking about medieval medicine, healthcare acts are preventative health regimen, eating good food, having a clean environment, um, making sure you get fresh air and exercise. That's women's work.
1: Yeah. What, yeah. Wow. Wonderful. Um, I was really impressed by these women. I mean, like I, I felt while well, I was reading, I felt this like reverence and fondness for them. I imagine you did as well.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, um, they are they are wild and wacky and uh, (laughs) fascinating and i mean for me they are you know we we use today especially now the language of essential worker and Mm -hmm. um um you know like first first line frontline workers sorry um and that's that's what they're doing um
1: they're essential Okay, so let's talk about your afterword and your search for a place to end the book. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I don't know if I need to ask a question after that. I think you can just go from there. Uh, Yeah,
0: I mean, I I couldn't end it. I couldn't finish it. So the only reason that I was really able to end it was – by okay well, two I would say two things. One is I had to be incredibly uh, precise and incredibly limited on the one hand, because if you start looking the way if you start using the these kinds of methods, you know non evidence, for example, um You'll never not find things. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. and so you know, I just kept like Lucy Barnhouse published this really great article in Medieval Feminist Forum. Right, right as I was trying to finish, and she was she's like basically seeing very similar patterns um, in 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 Germany. And I was like, oh my gosh, do I need to you know like do I need to stretch into Germany? Do I need to go into Italy? No, no,
1: no, because this no you is- don't. <laughs>
0: Exactly. So um, the, and then the other, I think one of the other things is um, my, my uh, lovely editor at Cornell, Mahender Kingra was like, you're going to get questions about witches.
2: I want to say
0: something about the witches. And so, um, so trying to end it was, it felt futile because it's a pattern that sustains, you know, if we, if we think about submerged knowledge and if we think about, the gender division of labor and, frankly, the raced division of labor, mm-hmm. um, we're constantly going to be coming up against um, this problem of submerged knowledge, this problem of authority refusing to recognize, um, to give place in the archive uh, to the sort of daily sustaining acts that I was that I was searching after. And so, yeah, the afterword just um, it. I, I guess it it, it 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 tries to chronicle that um that constancy. And so it's we I look at an example of a, a report from a, a begin um from uh uh the nineteenth century where it you know that we see the exact same pattern where basically the the, the care that she sort of engineers and her network engineers, um, the kinds of therapeutic tools they develop, um, it becomes a miracle. It's sort of translated as, oh, Mary's intervention, or no, it's actually not Mary's intervention, um, Philomena's uh, uh, miraculous intervention. Um and so and I I you know I look at um closer to home well what was my home for my life <laughs> yeah a similar miracle in South Louisiana and um yeah it just it feels like a um this sort of a current that won't really end the wave sure.
1: <laughs> well, I, I mean, you do right. You start in Ghent uh, in 1840. And then when it's 1870, and we're in Louisiana. And then we're back in the 14th century. And it's just back and forth the dialectic between women caring for their patients, the ability of women to care for their patients, the constant attempt by men of authority to limit it. I mean, yeah, what how do you end that story? Yeah, because it's, that. its we're still <laughs> in it. But, um, you know, it it was a valiant, good, good effort. Um, and it it felt like a conclusion. I was not dissatisfied. I didn't finish and it was like, well, you know, kind of, you know, it wasn't like the, uh, I was just waiting for a sequel. So. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, here's my next question. What are you working on now? Oh, okay.
0: There you go. Um, so one of the things about this book that just, um, just like, grabbed me by the you know the, the the I don't know shoulders and shook me into a new way of thinking was um ideas about performance as a mode of cultural transmission. so I've been developing a project that traces forms of the French pre-modern that sort of flicker um throughout um the uh the 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 atlantic world really um so um i really want to break with um i've been writing you know in a very traditional academic mode with the academic monograph and i want to break away from that as much as possible um uh and performance uh, as an analytical lens allows that. Um, I also really want to question my own position um, in a more sort of um, upfront and visible way, you know, where where I came from and how my own family history um, helps, has shaped the way I have seen the medieval past. Um, it becomes, you know, especially with, the, with this, um, with acts of care when we end in Louisiana, I mean, it's clear to me that the way that I see the medieval world is, is very much filtered by my own, um, my own cultural context. Um, and so, you know, there are models like Kendra field, for example, has written a wonderful book that, that uses her own position, her own family history to think about, um, uh, migrations, um, and so that's kind of become a model. Sarah Knott, I think, is another example. Her book, um, I think it's called Mother is a Verb, um, really breaks with academic modes uh, or the academic monograph to think about um, how to assemble fragments and personal experience into um, longer, deeper histories. And so what I want to do is, like I said, um, I'm interested in sort of tracing these um modes of performance um, in the French pre-modern that flicker in the Francophone world, particularly in South Louisiana and the Caribbean. So things like carnival festivities, mortuary rituals, the Cajun and Creole ballads that I grew up with, which are all about St. Barbara, and you know, like they're all very, very medieval. Um, and they exist today because of the mixing, the hybridity that we with indigenous traditions, um, with African, Senegambian traditions and practices and knowledge, and so um, I, all I really know is that I'm, I'm still I'm still working on performance traditions. I'm thinking about them from um, from my own my own positionality, my own perspective, and I'm really trying to challenge simple notions of the pastness. Of the medieval past, and to sort of dismantle schemes of periodization that that make the medieval inaccessible, um, otherworldly, and I want to insist on access. Um, So, it's been it's been hard writing in in our current situation. (sighs) Yeah, but but hopefully that'll get off the ground soon.
1: Uh that is that is in ooh, that's intriguing. that sounds great um and uh, yeah, tracing these threads as they go through that sounds like it lead it's will lend it some this could just be me but it seems like that's gonna lend to a very gendered analysis as well. I think you're right. Yeah, like, <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of gender there um that sounds great. Wow, thanks so much, Sarah. What a great time. Well oh, goodness. Thank you so much.
0: I hope that one day we bust out of um isolation <laughs> mode and I can <laughs> I can talk to you in person. But I've been enjoying my coffee while talking to you over my computer screen.
1: Yeah, this is this has been great. I would I think a glass of wine and or Belgian beer is probably a better choice Ooh, here yeah, when I'm you talking. Well, the next time you make it over, you know, I'm just sitting here in Amsterdam waiting for people to visit me again. Oh, gosh, I bet. I would like to go home or anywhere else. It's a very small country to be kind of quarantined to. Um,
0: but No complaints. At least you've got that great beer.
1: That's very (laughs) true. That is the truth. And um, all the French fries I can eat. So, you know. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for your time. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.
2: 18- plus.